To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, and this is season two of The Mouse and Me. On the show, I'll chat with my pals who come from all walks of Disney life, including Imagineers, dancers, technicians, directors, musicians, and stuntmen, and Broadway friends who have worked on stage and behind the scenes. We'll talk attractions, shows, food, characters, tips and tricks for planning your trip and navigating the parks, and more. Now, put on your Mickey ears or your princess crown and enjoy season two of The Mouse and Me. Hello, Disney fans. Welcome to the show. Before we get to today's guest, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, tell your friends about it, and if you'd like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash themouseandme. Also, follow me on the socials by searching The Mouse and Me. We post questions, pictures, information about past, current, and upcoming guests, and we do Fun Fact Friday because, well, I love my fun facts. And now today's guest. He worked for the Walt Disney Company for 15 years, primarily as the Disney Youth Program Sales Manager for Disney Performing Arts at the Disneyland Resort. Under his award-winning leadership, his team created Disney Performing Arts Presents, an educator's summit, Inspiring Brilliance, a two-day summit which hosted educators from around the world. He also developed the first individual workshop opportunity for students at the Walt Disney Company called Disney Performing Arts Open Enrollment, as well as the first Disney Performing Arts Conservatory. Before starting his career at Disney, my guest performed on Broadway in the revival of Greece, as well as the national tours of Greece, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Chicago, and South Pacific. I'm so happy to be able to introduce you to my pal, Thomas Schulteis. Thomas, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Of, of course, we're going to get into your time at Disney, but I'd like to start with your career before Disney. I'd, I'd like to talk about your time in Greece on Broadway. You were in that revival for what, three years? Yeah, I was ultimately with it for about three and a half years. I When I moved to New York in 94, um, the show had already started. I ended up getting cast in the national tour first in January of 95, I stayed with that tour for several months. And then when I went back to the city, there was a change happening on Broadway. And I remember them <laughs> saying to me, hey, would you like to join the Broadway cast? And it was kind of just a casual, hey, do you want to just... And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they called me and I think it was by June of 95 that I started working um, on Broadway in Greece in that revival. Yeah. Nice. Now, did you do the same role on Broadway or did you move into a different role? So I was a swing and I covered the five male ensemble. Um, what I'll interject here, uh, just for the sake of what I thought was <laughs> an interesting Broadway debut moment. So I'm in the middle of rehearsing the Broadway version, which wasn't that different from the tour, but of course there are different people and there are different things that happen. And they come up to me and say, we need you to go on in a couple of numbers tonight. So I actually learned those couple of numbers. I think one was Grease Lightning and the other one might've been Beauty School Dropout and truly went to the theater and they made an announcement over the speakers that say, you're going to notice a new face on stage tonight. Thomas is joining us. And I was filling for those two numbers. So my, my Broadway debut was filling in for those two numbers right in the middle of my rehearsal period. That's incredible. 
Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> I truly met my dance partners on stage. Wow. Yeah. That's that pretty wild. cool. That was wild. Okay. So they asked you to join the Broadway company. How long did you tour before New York? It wasn't very long. It was, let's see, January, February, March. I think I probably stayed March or April and then went back to the city. And then by June is where they had an opening in the Broadway okay. company to join. Yeah. Okay. And now uh, how much of the show was different? I mean, I'm assuming that the sets were were pretty darn close. The choreography was pretty close. I mean, I know on tour you're in all these different theaters with different physical space. Uh, so how much adjustment did you have to do? You know, in, in with my memory, there were a few technical differences with the stage itself because one was um, one we traveled with that was obviously had to fit in different spaces where the Broadway stage was obviously more permanent. Um, I don't remember there being so many uh, technical or set pieces that were different, but what was different is an entirely new group of faces and switching from five tracks that I was covering on tour was very different than the five tracks covering in the Broadway company. So I um, I remember very quickly coming up with different index cards that I color-coded so that before each night when I had to go on for different roles, I would sort through these index cards to remember, okay, beauty school, they've got right hand here. <laughs> beauty school, they have left hand here. I mean, it was really, when I think back on it now, I think, wow, how did I how did I get all that stuff in my, my brain and remember it when I got on stage? It takes a very special, incredibly talented person to be able to be a swing in any show. Yeah. I don't know what they had seen in me to, to process all of that. I know that there were many, many pre-performances where I was just kind of internally a nervous wreck because <laughs> I always would think there are hundreds of people that are paying good money to come see the show and they don't want to see some guy putting his left hand up when the rest of the company is putting their right hand up. So I, I would sit and go over every part of the show when I had a different track and um, would try to keep breathing. I wasn't in a meditation like I should have been. <laughs> then because that would have helped a lot but I leaned on those no cards oh and the other thing is is I had because I I was covering the different roles I also had to cover their different parts and there was was a four-part basically like barbershop that opened the top of the second act and I had to learn three of those different vocal parts of a very tight, tight harmony and also had to do that in the different parts depending on who I went on for. And I remember that one particularly caused me a great amount of stress and anxiety. I know that the New York production had a lot of stars, uh, Brooke Shields, Chubby Checker, Sheena Easton, the list goes on. Was there one who stood out more than the others? That's an interesting question. I've never been asked that. What what I often get asked, Scott, and then I'll try to answer your question. What I get asked is... Um, you know, oh, did you like so-and-so? Or were you a fan of so-and-so? Or, oh, was that amazing? And I say to people that what really started to matter to me more than anything else, I didn't care about their resume. I didn't care about their accolades. Were they a nice person? Mm -hmm. That's the I only thing that really mattered. Um, one that stands out, and this is going to sound, this is, this is one that stands out. So 
I also want to preface that there were there was a reputation of our show at the time as it kind of kept going, where they would call it the love boat of Broadway, <laughs> where there'd be these different kind of seemingly unrelated guest stars that would show up to play Rizzo or <laughs> Chubby Checker, you know, would come in to play the the Teen Angel, and. I always looked at it from a business point of view because the Weislers were the producers who have subsequently taken over Chicago. They were the ones who produced Chicago, which is still running. And you can see the same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. It lives there. So I always felt that whoever they were bringing in was keeping the show open and keeping us employed. So right. I had a lot of forgiveness. So that's the very long preface to say, I get it. You know, was everyone the greatest person for the roles or the shows? No. But the one one of them that stands out to me um, is Linda Blair. They brought in to play Rizzo. Mm -hmm. And I had been so scared of The Exorcist when I was a child <laughs> that I was, I was kind of viscerally nervous to meet her. Because I thought, how am I going to like rectify, you know, meeting this horrendous character that was played and, and I've got to be on stage with them. Well, what ended up happening, and tr this is a true story. I remember slow motion that I was getting introduced to her and I thought, oh, I'm going to touch her hand. Oh no, I'm going to shake her hand. And I shook her hand and it turns out she was the loveliest, sweetest, kindest. She's like an anim animal advocate. Um, and my my fears kind of quickly dissipated, uh, and I remember thinking, "Wow, that's a that's a lot of childhood trauma that I was working through in <laughs> there." But she was such a delight and so lovely, and her animal advocacy, which I think she still does to this day, was uh, was something really great to discover. Now, is it true that on her closing night, her head spun? <laughs> um, I cannot I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> I, I find it really neat and refreshing that you said, uh, you know, the uh, your preface to, to my question was, you know, you look for, you know, is the person nice? Like yes. whenever I find that, you know, I worked with this person, I always say, how were they? Were they nice? Because I want to know what they're like truly as a person. Scott, it translated when I ended up doing VIP tours at Disneyland and I would get from other cast members, you know, oh, did you like so-and-so or how is it to you know, kind of fanning out, you know, with them. And I would continue to go, <laughs> it only matters if they are a nice person. And especially with some of those tours where it would be 17 hours with them. Right, right. That your main concern becomes, for me anyway, became, are they a nice, kind human being? Mm -hmm. I, I worked with Debbie Reynolds a very long time ago in Las Vegas. Oh, cool. And people say, how was she? Mm -hmm. And my answer is the best, just oh, absolutely awesome. a sweetheart of sweethearts. And, you know, once the show closed, I, I went on tour. And then a year later, I went back to Las Vegas to visit family. And then I went over to her hotel to just see who el who happened to still be there so I could say hi and chat with my friends. And so I'm walking through the hotel and, you know, uh, there was this, the car that she drove from Singing in the Rain was in the lobby in the mm. middle of, of the lobby. Oh, and cool. I noticed someone wiping down the car, dusting the car. So I walked towards the car, towards the person. And I'm like, 
Debbie? <laughs> she was she was wiping down the car. That she time. was. She was hanging out in the lobby in her hotel, wiping down the car, just dusting it off. She turns around, and this is a year later, and she turns around and she's like, Scott, dear, how are you? And we spoke for about an hour. Like the well, nicest person. That's it's, it's so great to hear. And you know, I, I'm sure as you've experienced, there's some, obviously you work with some people and you know, you don't connect or get along or you see some behaviors that you're not thrilled about. But what's so exciting to me is when people reach a certain level of acclaim or success and they are amazing. And I find that I, I enjoy being able to talk about those people and how lovely and wonderful some of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've come across, whether it was in my performing career or my time at Disney. Being around people like that just makes me a better person. <laughs> yes. I had someone, I mean, I don't know how much I should say names on here, but I had someone that um, I had met in a similar situation a couple of times, kind of casually. And then about three years later, I saw them at a rap party. And there's no reason why they should have remembered me at all. And this is a pretty kind of up there established star. And I remember at this party, she turns and she runs up to me and hugs me. And it says, so it's so good to see you again. And I thought, I, I don't even know how she had that capacity to just remember who I was after three years. So some people do, I think some people that, that have been really successful, they have that extra ability to not only recognize and see other people, but remember them. Mm-hmm. And then be able to reconnect. That's what I've seen. Can you share any crazy theater stories and highlight moments from Greece? So it's funny. I was watching something the other night and it made me think of this. When when I've recalled my memories of Greece, maybe it's just the way my brain works. But it's funny. I recall, and maybe it's because of the position of being a swing. I recall these really but kind of out of proportion mistakes that happened. Those are the ones that ring true for me. Um, There are a couple that I can remember, remember that stand out. One of them is in Grease Lightning. They choreographed that we worked with, I think they were 15 or 18 pound actual tires Mm. that we got hazard pay for because we had to roll them up our back and swing them around. Well, I went in, it was one of the first, it was in within the first couple of weeks of working on Broadway coming from the national tour. And it's another example where some of the differences and I got in just slightly in the wrong space on stage. So my tire hit another, it hit this actor named Brad Aspel. <laughs> I hit his tire. Oh, no. And of course he wasn't ready for that. So his tire goes rolling off the back of the stage and he <laughs> has to do the rest of the number with no tire. And of course I felt mortified. I thought, Oh no, I was in the wrong place and I knocked his tire out. So that one stays with me. There's another one um, where at the end of the first act, we have these kind of day glow hula hoops. And of course, imagine you've got, you know, a cast swinging hula hoops in a variety of ways that what's going to happen. Well, they're going to go swinging all over the place. And I had one one time that just swung right out into the audience. And uh, that was mortifying. Um, there was another time where we had a, we had a sequence where the greasers uh, in Grease Lightning, there was a, they're on the upper level and they grabbed our hands to pull us up from the lower level. Mm-hmm. Well, I stepped and missed 
like my foot slipped and the edge of the stage went right into my shin. Oh (laughs) no. It was like bleeding, ended up, you know, I, I, of course the adrenaline like got me through and I, I think I completed that performance, but that was really intense that it happened. So these are the, the memories that come to me. Um, I think again, because of the position that I was in those glaring, like obvious things. I've also though, because I teach workshops and stuff and I, 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 uh, I do some, some coaching with musical theater students and I tell them, I say, you know, for all of these big mistakes that may happen, you have to remember that even if it's the biggest possible mistake, there's still a portion of the audience that's going to miss it. (laughs) So you have to keep going. Um, and the show must go on essentially, Mm -hmm. but that, uh, those are a couple of the, um, you know, mistakes that happen that, that I remember from my time. You mentioned the the tire bouncing off stage. Yeah. Um, when I, I did a tour of Singing in the Rain, and the character, uh, the guy who was playing Dom Lockwood, jumped up on the lamppost. And in one performance, I, I, I don't remember the theater. I want to say Scranton. I, I, I really don't know. But the, the bulb at the very top of the light post fell off and bounced oh. on the stage and then bounced into the audience and rolled down the aisle. And of course, you know, he just continued as if nothing happened. And one brave audience member picked up the the big bulb. Oh and my the audience the member did and gently placed it right at the edge of the Amazing. stage and sat down nice and quietly. And we're watching this from backstage and we're like, wow. We're like, okay, maybe he maybe he comes from the theater and he knows you've got to put it back, give it back <laughs> to them. That's hysterical. Yeah, I I don't know what it is about those moments. Maybe because you know, the performance we're trying to get to be so consistent in a run that when something is so glaringly different, maybe perhaps that's why I remember it. There's one that's a little more lighthearted that I'm going to share. So you, I don't know if you know Jennifer Cody. Um, she's She played our cha-cha for quite a, quite a while. And then she went on to do You're in Town. She's the, actually the voice of the character from The Princess and the Frog, the blonde character. Oh, Hmm. I should look it up if I, if I can. Um, So anyway, the story was, is that she is just an absolute firecracker. She's first of all, um, really uh, tiny. She's like a a small little firecracker dancer. So when she got cast as um, cha-cha, what was part of the humor of the situation is this kind of very diminutive firecracker comes out and was just undeniable. I mean, the, the crowd loved her. Um, so every time that I'd go in to the show and we got to the dance, hold on, I'm trying to find uh, her, the princess and the frog, Charlotte. <laughs> okay. She, uh, so Jennifer Cody was Charlotte LaBeouf in Princess and the Frog. So what she would do though, when I would go on is we had this thing between us where her character was really aggressive and just wanted to win. And that was, you know, kind of what she took with her through the performance. Well, she'd come to me and start like grabbing at me and this, the audience couldn't see it because we were like down, but she would come and um, many nights would go and start biting my leg. (laughs) And she was doing it from a character point of view. And I was, you know, playing a student that was at the dance and uh, she would try to kind of get a rise out of me. Most <laughs> nights when I was on, she would try to cha-cha, would try to bite my leg. So I do remember that too. 
Hmm. Now, what was worse, your leg sliding into the set or her biting your leg? <laughs> well, I think what was worse is that I was like recoiling from her if anyone had a chance to see. <laughs> yeah, scooting back out of the way. So you were in Greece on Broadway. You did Greece on tour, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Chicago and South Pacific on tour. Which was the most fun show and which was the most challenging? Um, so what I've said about Smokey Joe's Cafe is I remember watching it and enjoying it. I really do. I enjoyed a lot of the music. But I loved being in that show. It was such a joy as a performer. And I kept thinking, well, I hope that the audience is enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying it. Uh, it was such a funny experience because I thought, I I feel like I'm enjoying doing this more than maybe the audience would be because I would just have such a ball. So Smokey Joe stands out to me. There was also, I, I often tell this story. So Joey McNeely, who uh, was Tony nominated for his choreography in Smokey Joe's Cafe, he set our show. And I remember when we were doing Teach Me How to Shimmy, um, which is basically the girl with the shimmy dress, right? It's the shimmy girl. And then I, in my role, sing the song, but it's really a focus on her. We were starting to learn the number and he was putting it on our cast. And he goes, oh, you can, you can go. Um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with her on this. And I was like, are you kidding? I was like, I want to watch every moment of this. I want to see what you did to create it. So he was like, all right, so stick around. And what I loved is he, when he said he was building the, the number, he said, you know, you can shimmy a dress. He's like, so that's one thing, but I wanted her to shimmy the dress 60 different ways. And so I watched for the next several hours as he broke down all of these different ways that she was going to shimmy in her dress. And so it was those, the layered details of that that I thought were, were so extraordinary. And I remember thinking when the work is so thoughtful, so clear that as a performer, then I get to show up and deliver it. And I remember experiencing that with that particular show. I thought this material is so strong and the way they've constructed it is is so well done that I just need to show up and do my job of delivering it. Um, so that that's definitely an aspect of that show that I really liked. The most um, challenging, I guess my answer, when I did Chicago, I... and. and without getting into too much detail, but I'm just going to be trying to be honest about it. Um, I, they had me cast as the uh, detective that comes in at the beginning. And sometimes in the mode of a musical theater performer, where it's really just song and dance, sometimes translating myself to even the simplest and most straightforward of acting would sometimes be the most challenging that I had to, I had to kind of work through my own, insecurities, I guess, about musical theater and then also leaning into the acting. So I found that for me personally, trying to deliver on all three of those fronts was at times, depending on the show, could present its its surprising challenge. It's one of the things I also will talk to people about when, when we talk about Broadway and working there. And from my understanding and some of the research that I've done, you know, instead of having the dance ensemble and the chorus, you know, and then the principals, they smush them together for 
largely economic reasons. So that the triple threat kind of grew out of this economic necessity of saying, if we pay one person, they can do all three. We don't have to pay three different people to do those different things. But what that does, it puts the pressure on then those of us who are tasked to be singer, actor, dancers, to make sure that you're delivering all of those fronts. And so mm-hmm. I remember some of the acting stuff because I didn't feel as as versed in it at times. Um, I would have to really work and drill down on just figuring that part out too. Mm. What do you enjoy most about performing? For me, the my whole like trajectory of performing and now arts education happened when I was 16 years old and I was cast as the scarecrow in this high school production of The Wiz. And we had a, um, you know, when you put the lens on it now, uh, while it was a predominantly white cast, we did have persons of color that were part of us too. I don't know if we could pull something like that off now, but at the time um, we also had an African-American choreographer and assistant choreographer come in and truly changed our worlds. And what they did in answering your question, what they did is they showed us a way to tap into the performer inside and let the joy come out. Um, I remember being so kind of knocked out, like my mind blown, because they were they were breaking down how you use your voice, you use your bodies to communicate these really um, big emotions, these big transformative moments. And that particular show, again, having like the source material of The Wizard of Oz, is already such a transformative story that I think as a young, impressionable performer, what happened was they kind of opened me up and said, you can live (laughs) through joy on stage. And that's probably the closest that I can get in describing why what I enjoy most about performing. It's if if I can get all of those pieces in place and show kind of like the real exuberance that is possible, it becomes really rewarding to put that energy out and then get it back. That it's it's like its own kind of communication with a community or the audience. Mm. If you could go back in time and see one single production, what would it be? The first thing that comes to mind, but it's already recorded that I've watched, was the Sweeney Todd with Angela Lansbury and George Hearn, which I thought I still think is extraordinary. So that's one answer. The next answer is probably wanting to see uh, Dream Girls, the original production, and I would love to see. Um, Jennifer Holiday. Mm. So Jennifer Holiday, yeah, she would be someone that I would be like to be able to travel back in time and see her perform that role. Tell me about your work with the Walt Disney Company. How, how did you get started with Disney? Um, so the true story is is that we were vacationing. We would vacation out um, in California because my spouse's family lives out here um, while, while we were living in New York. And I remember there being one February where um, it was raining sideways, icy rain. 
in New York and we got on the, out on the plane here in Long Beach and it was sunny and beautiful. And I was, I thought, what is, this is what your Februarys look like in California. (laughs) Um, So that was the beginning. The other thing that happened is we were kind of casually looking for places and believe it or not, looked in this little Holmes magazine and saw this tiny little house in a little black and white picture and reached out to a real estate agent who brought us to the house that we went into and about 10 minutes of being inside the house knew that it was next and the house was going to be ours. And so Mm. it was one of those clarifying moments where I knew that this was the next chapter. Um, But in answering your question, so we got out to California and what one of the things that I had said years before I'd even moved to New York is I would say to people, I would go, I would say, I was, I would say, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to do a Broadway show and then I'm going to go work for Disney. Hmm. So I got to California and we came to California with no employment in sight. It was truly, this house is the next chapter. We're moving forward with it. We're going to tell our friends and tell our employers in New York, hey, we're going and not really knowing what was next. And it was about a month in that what I had said, which at that point had probably been 12 to 15 years prior, that I said I was going to do a Broadway show and then work for Disney. I went, Disney's down the street. So I went at the time when you still could, and they still did it, and walked into the lobby of casting and filled out an application. Uh, I guess what I'll clarify is by this time, having lived in New York for 11 years and done touring and off-Broadway and Broadway, um, I had never really had an interest for TV and film. And so I felt that the, the chapter was changing, the page was turning, and I wanted to do different things in my life. And knowing that I'd wanted to be a part of Disney, I thought, hey, I'll just stay open to whatever kind of shows its itself as I move forward. And that's kind of what happened after I applied. And what was your first role with the Disney company? So I'll tell you the first. So the, the um, Marilyn Krug was the second interview that I had that first day that I went in. They said, can you can you stay a little bit and then have your second interview? And I was like, sure. I didn't really even know what was happening. So I go into Marilyn. I mentioned her because she uh, she was really a great support for, of mine throughout my time at Disney. But I met her at this interview and I'm talking to her about Broadway. I'm talking about experiences moving out, being a performer. And she turns to me and she goes, well, I just don't understand. Why would we hire you? It sounds like that you want to be you know, a performer again. And I said to her this story that I've told you, I said, well, the truth is, is before, you know, I moved to New York, I said, I want to do a Broadway show and then I want to go work for Disney. And she goes, okay. And she stood up and she shook my hand and she said, you're hired. And she hired me in guest relations, uh, which I didn't really know much about because I just filled out an application and wasn't looking to perform and um, she placed me in that department as my first, as my first role. And what specifically did you do as guest relations? And and where were you stationed? So they started. I think at the time they started everyone out in the phone room. So we would just take calls of answering questions. I also had another manager, Russell Stewart, who was incredibly supportive of me at that time. Um, and he started giving me pretty early, and I guess it caused a little bit of controversy within the department. He started having me 
help to support some of the tours rather quickly because they needed it. And I guess that ruffled some people's feathers who um, had been there longer than I had. Mm-hmm. And, and when you say tours, I'm sorry, you mean like in the parks? Yeah. Yeah. So guided tours. Okay. And the help that he was asking me to do was to basically, it, I think it was like helping get their meals and making sure that a different touch points along the way that I was able to be there to help the guests. Um, but anyway, so that caused some controversy. Um, so I was working in the phone room and then getting some of the tour experiences, but then they wanted to move me to city hall. And I remember saying to them, please don't, I, I really mm-hmm. just, I just really don't think that that's a good fit for me. And they're like, no, no, we're going to move you there. They ended up moving me to the a lead of the city hall, which I just didn't, I never wanted it. I, I thought that the responsibility was, was so Herculean that we were going to be the touch points of people having a make or break day or make or break moment. Um, yeah. So I did move up to being one of their leads in city hall, as well as um, they did moving me up to being a VIP guide. So I would, I was giving VIP tours to um, some some big celebrities mm. in my time rather rather quickly because I was with guest, guest relations I think in total for about two years but after a year I started to get shared between guest talent programs and guest relations there was basically an agreement that they made that I would work three days with guest relations and two days with guest talent got it got it I just want to back up for a quick second. You, you said you were on the phones. Now, now, where physically were you? Were, were you able to do that from home? Were you near the parks? If were you-, you looked at City Hall from where you're standing, it it was a, a little office back to the left. So it wasn't visible from the park side, but okay. from the back. And we sat in essentially an office space where we had probably about 12, 10 to 12 different phone banks that we would set our own stations and take calls that would ask anything, (laughs) anything that we had to know about the park, everything from, you know, the obvious like ticket prices to directions on how to get there to what are your, you know, what's the weather like, or what time are the nine o'clock fireworks? What time are there? Exactly. (laughs) What time is the three o'clock parade? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So you did the VIP tours. That that's something that I've always wanted to do, and I I'm sure you got all this training and all, all this Disney knowledge and history. Uh, what are some facts that blew your mind once you learned about them? Let's see. Let me dig back. So the yes, the training we did it was multi day training that they would take us to, um, and I don't know what the categories were that they were looking for for B- VIP guides. But you didn't really apply for it. You know, it was kind of something, if memory recalls, that you were kind of chosen to be trained for the VIP guides. So we, I remember Chervet trained us multi days. Uh, and if Chervet listens to this, hello, Chervet, who was amazing. She was just such an incredible uh, person and friend. She still is. Um, but the facts that they would take us, truly, Scott. They had to take us as VIP guides to almost every corner of that resort, including the hotels. We had to learn about alternate entrances. We had to learn about, you know, exit plans and exit strategies if you need to. 
Um, those were definitely some of the surprises where I thought, oh, we're operating in a different kind of almost subterranean level, sometimes quite literally and other, other times just below what the public can see. Um, and those aspects, of course, you know, you just don't know about until they tell you. And uh, I remember thinking it's, I got it pretty quickly that people will say, oh, you know, the, the celebrities or these notable people, they don't have to wait in lines. They get moved around in different capacities. And the truth is about that, um, and I, I witnessed it a couple of times when I had certain celebrities that didn't want to necessarily do that, that what happens is there become such park disruptions that it really skews towards the safety concerns. And therefore, having alternate entrances is almost primarily a safety concern that you can't have, you know, let's say um, a Meryl Streep walking around the park because yeah. she will get and, you know, masses of people everywhere she goes. And so I learned pretty quickly that there was this kind of safety aspect, not only for them, but also for the guests and also trying to deliver as much normalcy to their visit as possible so that they're not being bombarded on their day to Disney with their family, with people kind of asking things from them throughout the day. Sure. Who was the most fun VIP? So because what's nice, like we talked about earlier, you know, the, the same thing again, I'll repeat that whether they were kind or nice people really left an impression on me. And I'm happy to report that there are three different actresses that I worked with multiple times who were about the kindest, most lovely, thoughtful, <laughs> down-to-earth uh, people in, in those circumstances. Um, the first one that I'll mention is Diane Lane, who um, she was just as lovely and extraordinary as you'd expect her to from, if you know, under the Tuscan sun, you know, that's not far removed from just the loveliness of this woman. Um, she was someone who was completely outstanding. I remember her saying a goodbye to me the last time. And she did this wave goodbye to me as her car was pulling away. That was so cinematic. She like, her hand came out the window and she said something to me like, you know, stay happy, like, you know, keep finding your happiness. And her hand was like going out the door. And I thought, wow, she's really, she's a movie star. Mm -hmm. um, another that I'll mention is Laura Dern. Mm -hmm. Laura Dern is so fun and smart and um, lovely. There's one story I remember that she was, she had her two kids and she was trying to carry all these bags. And, you know, there are all kinds of guidelines that they give us as, as tour guides. And I said to her, I was like, can you please give me those bags to carry for you? I mean, you are just like trying to do everything. Um, but she, just such an extraordinary person who every moment, uh, you know, with her was just really lovely. And then finally, um, who I'll mention is Kathy Najimi. Oh, yeah. So just number one, hysterical. I mean, her and her husband, her husband is maybe, I don't know what he's most known for, but I knew him as the head of the Dan Band. And he is the singer and performer who would sing at the end of, I think, The Hangover is one of the movies 
that they sing to. So he's definitely likes to push the envelope of about what, you know, you can say and what you can't say. And they invited me to dinner at the parks. And one of the things, one of the guidelines that you have, again, if memory recalls about the circumstances is that you are allowed to say yes to that. Um, What's interesting from the VIP tour guide is that usually you've been going for eight or nine hours at that time. And in some levels, what you'd rather do is just go take a break and just chill out for an hour and a half. Um, But being asked is certainly nice. And I remember they asked me um, to dinner and I joined them and they had some friends and some other family. And then they proceeded for the rest of the meal to try to get me to break essentially out of my VIP tour guide character through the entire dinner in Hmm. as many ways as they possibly could, whether Hmm. it was some of the things they were saying, some of the things they were asking me to say, and I just kept refusing. So that became um, the banter through the entire dinner. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember where you ate? Yes, we ate at the Plaza Inn. Okay. Nice. I do remember. I love hearing stories about nice celebrities. Isn't it the truth? I mean, yeah. I'll tell you, they, um, it, it is. It's it's a joy to be able to say it because particularly with Laura Dern and with Diane Lane, and I just don't know about enough about Kathy Najimy's um, younger self, but Laura Dern and Diane Lane have been a part of kind of Hollywood and that world almost their entire lives. And in some ways you'd think, oh yeah, they could get jaded. They could be, you know, like we're done with it. Please people stop giving me attention. And they're just the opposite. They're the kind of people, if they were to walk in the room right now and I'd say, hi, this is Scott. And they go, oh, hi, it's nice to meet you. You know, just as relatable and down to earth as you'd mm-hmm. hope. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at Disneyland and I happened to be there the day that Patrick Mahomes was there. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. The and so I am walking down Main Street completely oblivious to everything around me. Just I'm looking at the buildings. I'm looking at the people. I really had no idea that people were sitting and standing and lining the streets. It just didn't enter my my thought process. Yep. All I saw was Josh Demaro. I'm like, Ooh, oh, that's Josh Demaro. <laughs> like, I know him. I want to go say hello. That's funny. So I go over to him. I'm like, Josh. And, you know, he he doesn't know me, but I, I know him. So, you know, I say Josh. And he turns around. He's like, oh, hi, how are you? He extends his hand. We shake hands. I'm like, hey, I just wanted to, you know, let you know this, this is my first day here. I'm here for a week. I'm having the best time. And just thank you for everything that you're doing for this company. He's mm. like, oh, my pleasure. I'm glad you're having fun. I said, oh, would you mind, you know, could, could I get a quick picture with you? He's like, oh, I, I can't. And then he points and then I turn around <laughs> like, and it's oh. Patrick Holmes. <laughs> That's hysterical. In the fire truck driving down. So Patrick Mahomes, in my in my experience, was very nice because he chose not to run me over. Oh, that was yeah. very nice of him. I also yes. think it's hysterical and it totally shows that you're a Disney fan because you're more interested in talking to Josh Jamaro in that moment. Yes, I was all about Josh. And you know what? He he was so charming and so engaging in the 30 seconds maybe that I was talking to him and he's so handsome. Can I tell you, Scott? So let me tell you, I met Josh while I was working there at least three different times. I am a huge fan of that man. He gave me time that someone in his position did not need to give. 
he is the real deal, in my opinion. He is the real deal of personifying what is best about Disney. Mm-hmm. Where he has the capacity to take moments with people. And I'm so glad to hear that with you because that was also my experience. I think he is at the next level of, of a leader at that company because every interaction I had with him, he was completely down to earth, charming, like you said, mm-hmm. and takes the time to acknowledge you as a human being. Yeah. I, I enjoyed my very brief time with him and I, I, who knows if there will ever be more time, I will be very thankful for it. And uh, I, I know Bob Iger is going to retire again in a couple of years. And I know Josh is, you know, in the running. So yeah, he's, we'll- in the, he's in the vicinity. I mean, if, you know, uh, to me, it would only make sense that at some point in Josh's career that happens. And I'm just happy to report, as you're saying, too, that he's just a, a tremendous person from mm-hmm. my experience. So, Yeah. Now, I know you also developed educational programming for Disneyland. When you did that, how did you differentiate from programs already offered, such as New York City Broadway workshops for theater students with cast members from the shows? Like, as as Walt would have said, how, how did you plus your workshops? So this, you know, once I moved into, you know, uh, I'll just basically say yes, that that what started to happen internally when I moved over to essentially guest talent programs that helps run those youth programs, that was really more of my wheelhouse because I'm a product of arts education. Um, you know, I have experienced instrumental vocal dance and theater as a, as a student. So that program itself was a really good fit for me. They were, um, they had an opportunity an opening, a created position for this Disney performing arts sales manager. And I had a couple of people suggest and recommend that I apply. And I, it was, it was a little bit of a long shot at the time because where I was coming from, I was, I was heading up the administration team of, of guest talent programs at the time. Um, so it ended up being kind of a two, two tier jump that I took, but what, it all aligned with, again, was this passion for the arts and passion for arts education. So once I got into this, I, I did get the role. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Christian Peterson, who was the the leader who hired me at the time. Um, he saw in me that love for, for the arts. And what happened at that particular time is that we had some basically funding which was going to allow us to help develop more of the programs under Disney Performing Arts. So I reached out to about a dozen of the thought leaders around the program internally and basically surveyed if we had direction a direction to go, what are some of the some of the areas that you think that we could consider moving into? And I used that list that kind of showed up with some consensus about the direction that we would go. And so I brought it back to Christian and said, these are some of the ideas. And I think that we can really move on some of these based on my, my perspective of the program. The program had started as um, magic music days, which a lot of people maybe would remember that name. It got rebranded into Disney performing arts as a more inclusive to include both instrumental vocal dance and theater, which sometimes weren't getting as much of the attention. So when I was there, I really tried to 
help encourage and lead more programming into theater and into dance that had not been quite as balanced. Um, and that overall view of the arts, because I thought they all exist here at the Disney company. You have all of those elements of the arts that already exist. So if we can leverage into those, it would be really, I think, rewarding for all of these different schools and students that want to come to have more options to choose from. And, you know, coincidentally, we found that once more offerings in the different genres were disciplines were showing up, we would have sometimes bands taking an improv acting class. We would have, you know, the dance team take a, a vocal workshop. Like sometimes they were starting to broaden their experiences and it was, it was nice to be a part of, the team to help make that happen. Nice. As a stage performer yourself, you you know the challenge of always keeping the show fresh. You had school groups traveling from across the country with big expectations because of the name Disney. How did you motivate your team to keep from falling into the trap of simply reading a script? For example, Jungle Skippers seem to love the backside of water joked, so they keep that one alive. What was your backside of water? One of the times that I was most directly helping to lead a team was with that education educator summit, Inspiring Brilliance, that I created. And it was a concept that saw an opportunity to celebrate educators that were delivering at high levels from different parts of the country and within those different disciplines that I've mentioned, instrumental, vocal, dance, theater, as well as I had an outlier category. And they were invited to this summit. But when I uh, work with the team, and I want to give a shout out to uh, Jen Chia and Jen Santion, who helped develop Inspiring Brilliance, um, we basically put post-its up on a wall that said, what is our best of experience? If we had a best of two-day summit pulling from anything in our worlds, what would that be? And we ended up basically creating that event. So, but that was really the beginning of working with this team when you talk about like the backside of water and how do you keep it fresh? So when we constructed this event, what became very apparent to us is that the people that were going to be a part of hosting these educators had to really lock into what we were doing. And what that meant was essentially, we wanted people at the very least to have experience with the arts so that when they were talking to these educators, they could talk immediately on their level about their choirs or their dance teams or their theater troops or their bands and have an immediate connection with them. You know, that particular circumstance of two days wasn't really a long time programming, but what was long time is that we did it for four years. So each year we had to reapproach this concept of how can we make this one of the most special moments for these teachers coming together that they've had and really surprise them and, and delight them. So I hope that answered your question. For sure. How did you translate your experiences as a Broadway performer to that of an instructor for Disneyland? So the only specific time that I was an instructor was when I was a facilitator for the youth education series. So that's one. But I guess if I look at the broader sense and take the experiences as a Broadway performer and what I did in helping to kind of 
encourage and support and develop these Disney performing arts programs, it was always keeping an eye on the most authentic quality experience that the students could have. Specifically, yes, of course, with the stage performances, right? Because the the stage performances were highlights for people because they were actually performing in a Disney park for the guests, for their family, for their friends. And that that was a, a highlight moment. But the parts that also interested me and in some ways arguably interested me more were the workshops that we had because they were really getting down to the nuts and bolts of how do you do what you're doing? How do you get to those places on stage? And so helping to continue to encourage the highest quality experience for the students, also for the teachers in watching their students to really have the the most kind of transformative moments for them. We, we sat as a team um, I just want to. I just want to say this because I think it's. I think it's interesting. We sat in a, as a team one day to essentially brainstorm what were the identifying words, mission statement for the performing arts program. You know, out here at Disneyland, and there were probably twenty of us in the room, and we sat for several hours as we discussed, talked about our shared experiences as performers and as educators what really mattered. And we ended up getting down to three words that became for years, for me, kind of the guiding light, the like lighthouse of what the work that we were doing. The first word we came up with was inspire. And it felt very in line with the values of the company that there's so much about inspiration that leads people to first of all, come to the parks, right? And have those experiences. But the other was from an arts education point of view was they, we want to, we want them to kind of light up at the very beginning. Um, start with inspiration, whether it's look at what we're going to do with this soundtrack instrumental or soundtrack vocal workshop. Um, we're going to take your voices and put them with the, actual footage of these films from these Disney films, but you're going to be the chorus or you're going to be the band that records it. Um, and bridging those two gaps, right, between the professional and the the student and saying, you also have that possibility. So that was an inspiration. The second word we came up with was educate. We wanted them to not just feel like they were coming in and you know, having essentially a superficial experience. We wanted them to feel that they were really taking something away, tools perhaps, um, something that that they were really able to apply to their own lives. And then lastly, also, which I think was very in line with the, the Disney values, is transform. So we were at our best serving students in this capacity that they had a aha moment or a moment from, oh, I didn't think I could do that. And now maybe I can. And sometimes I was able to witness, and I know certainly our teaching artists were able to witness those moments happen in real time where they were realizing, oh, uh, this is, this might be possible. Whether that means I could maybe someday work for Disney, or maybe I could someday be a performer. Maybe I could sometimes go to someday go to Broadway. That whole part, um, was was really just such a driver, I think, for all of us, those three different words. Mm. 
Are there any workshops that you wanted to offer but were turned down by management? Uh, yes, we tried one. We piloted one a couple of times, and so and I still think it's a I still think it's a great idea. But there were some <laughs> logistic challenges, and it was a parade workshop. Hmm. So that what would happen is performers, perhaps primarily dance troops or dance companies or dance, you know, uh, would come and you would learn actual parade choreography, put it on, put it on its feet and even potentially work with one of the parade floats. So you can imagine some of the challenges or logistics sure, that would sure. make that possible. One for space, two for just access to working parade floats, which, which obviously presented some challenges, but that was a, that was a workshop that I really believed in. I thought that it also opened up this kind of line of opportunity because parades are something that Disney does so well. And there are so many dancers that want to be a part of it. It just seemed that there was a natural um, possibility that that could really work. Um, so it's, you know, out there um, in terms of some of the piloting that we did of it. But uh, yeah, that was one. I think that would be an amazing experience for those students. I mean, right? even if it happens, you know, after hours, I, I know it, it would be late and that presents right, a whole not, other set of challenges yes. or, or super early in the morning. Well, because it's I, its own thing, you know, it's its own thing. If you dig into it just a little bit, when I've watched the parade performers, there's a, there's a whole art to it. Cause you were, they're right there with the guest, right? Your face is there. And I've always been fascinated with the way that the performers have to carry themselves with this pleasantness, this accessibility, this kind of joy they have to sustain throughout the entire parade. You know, when Broadway, for example, as a difference or some of those proscenium stage shows, you have, there is diff there is more distance. You are up on a stage and kind of removed. You're like elevated and it's a very different kind of dynamic. So I, I've always been fascinated with the fact that these performers have to be right there <laughs> with the little kids that are waving or the people, you know, the fans that are waving. And I think there's a real art to that. I think it's something to kind of dig into. Um, and I've had the chance to, to know and talk to a lot of parade performers about some of those experiences and some of the performers that have worked at Disney in, in ways that they've really learned to be masters of kind of audience interaction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I know it doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, but I would have signed off on it. Thank you. It does mean something. I appreciate it. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the thing about, you know, what was so exciting about working at Disney was you could have ideas that you try. You could even just, even if you're just speaking at a meeting, you are sometimes in, circles or opportunities where you have a chance to say it you have to say you have a chance to say hey i have this idea do we think it could work and i know with that particular one like i said we we had it as like a pilot kind of like a little bit of an off menu item but the logistics just were always so challenging um, mm -hmm. that 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 became one of the the roadblocks to it but but at least having a chance to try was was pretty great what was the biggest challenge you faced with your time at disney and how did you overcome it what was it that idea or was it something else? The biggest challenge. So through the 15 years that I worked at Disney, there always existed 
a tension between creativity and the bottom line. Mm. So kind of like business and creativity. And I know, I believe it was on the Imagineering story, the five-part series that's on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. where they talk about the origins of the company, which essentially, if you look at Walt Disney and his brother Roy, were those two competing factors. That Walt Disney was the creative visionary that had all these ideas like, okay, and Roy was the one he said, okay, find the money and let's pay for it. That dynamic tension that existed between the two of them in my opinion, still exists today. It was a fundamental piece of the puzzle that the company was founded on. So in that is both the challenge of having the factions that say, we can't afford it. We don't have the money. We don't have the budget. No, you can't. No, that's not there. No, you know, you have that faction. And then you have the other faction that's like, but why can't we? Mm-hmm. Can we find the money? This seems like a really great idea. Like, let's explore it and find it out. So that that tension was also the most challenging because for me, who likes to get a lot of stuff done, I would sit there and go, "What? Why are what? What is happening? Why are we? Why is nothing moving?" And in perspective now, with not being with Disney and and some of the continued like considerations of it and knowing how creativity works and looking at those tensions. Um, it is a, a part of creative problem solving that's built in that there is always struggle that happens when you're trying to make something new. So simultaneously, it's that same answer. It's that you would have these, what you thought were great ideas as we've talked about, like the parade workshop, right? But then you'd get these things that kind of prevented you from really moving it forward. But what I loved is being in an, in an environment where at least you could keep trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have a listener question. Oh, okay. So Danny S. from South Florida asks, who is your favorite <laughs> Florida-based teacher? Interesting. I think he's, I think maybe he's leading that question a little bit. Um, and the truth, believe, believe it or not, I know a handful of Florida, amazing Florida teachers. So I will, my answer will be no comment, but I will say, <laughs> but I will say about Danny that um, he is certainly, and was certainly an example of a teacher who was not only he would be inspired by the programs that we were doing, but I found him to be inspiring. He, he was taking middle school students from Florida and flying them out to California so that they could experience not only Disneyland, but kind of LA proper and it's Hollywood, you know, leanings. And I remember sitting with him and I said, you are offering such extraordinary opportunities for your students. I said, I just don't understand. You know, you can go to Walt Disney World, but you've gone that extra level to say, I'm going to bring all of these middle schoolers across the country on planes to experience the West Coast. And I, I just think when it when an educator is able to find a way to provide that kind of opportunity and access for their students... I think it's pretty extraordinary. So yeah, hats off to Danny and the work that he's done. He is a very special person. I I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with him uh, my last year in high school. And we've been in touch, 
you know, since then, which, which was a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, my interview with him for the podcast was just very enlightening and just a lot of fun. Well, cause he's so, got, yeah, so he's one of those multi-potentialites, right? Where he, he's like doing the pilot stuff now, but he's been the teacher. He's also, he's been a playwright. I mean, he, just the things that he continues to do, it's just really, um, it's really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Of all the things you did for the Walt Disney Company, what are you most proud of? And we're out of time for today, but Thomas will be back next week where we talk about what he was most proud of while working for Disney, entertainment in the parks, a very interesting popcorn bucket, and so much more. Please subscribe to the show, rate it, leave a review, Follow me on social media by searching The Mouse and Me and visit patreon.com slash The Mouse and Me to support the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have the best day ever and see you real soon. Bye.